We're on uh, Daniel chapter 9. We finished the first part, which is uh, the prayer of Daniel last week. And now we're going to find out what happens to him while he was praying. Angel Gabriel came. Before we start there, I need to make a correction of a tongue slip last week. Um, I mentioned last week in timing that Daniel was deported in 597 B.C. Daniel was deported in 605 B.C. I've said that a million times. And everything I said about the timing was correct. I just said the wrong day. Okay, so if you, if some, some poor person listening on the tape tried to count the years from 597 to whatever I said, they would come out with the wrong number of years. But it was 605. There was a big deep deportation in 597. It was huge. It was the one Ezekiel was in. But um, Daniel was in a very small one in 605. All right, so we need to turn to Daniel uh, chapter 9, verse 20. Now, while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God on behalf of the holy mountain of my God, while I was still speaking in prayer, then the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision previously, came to me in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening offering. Okay, so what is one of the really cool things is he names the angel. And you know, we mentioned before that Gabriel is only named here. This was the only place in the Old Testament he's named. And the only other time he was named was when? In the vision of the ram and the goat. Remember that one? The last vision that we, that we read was the vision of the ram and the goat on the banks of the Ulai Canal. And how you know, they fought. And then there was this whole prophecy of the evil king. Okay, of the Antichrist that we went through. So we know because Daniel names Gabriel in this passage that that's the vision he's talking about. It's not the statues. It's none of the other visions that he had. It's the one about the Antichrist. Okay. So verse 22. He gave me instruction and talked with me and said, Oh, Daniel, I have now come forth to give you insight with understanding. At the beginning of your supplications, the command was issued, and I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. So give heed to the message and gain understanding of the vision. Gain understanding of the vision. That's the vision of the Antichrist, the the ram, the goat, and the Antichrist. Most people reading this assume that because Daniel was praying about the 70 years captivity, that... Gabriel is coming to tell him about the 70 years captivity. That's not what Gabriel says he's going to tell him about. Gabriel says he came to give him understanding about the vision that Gabriel appeared in. Okay. Now, the reason that it happens at the beginning of this prayer is because Daniel was confused about the timing of what was going to happen. And you can see why he was confused if we look back in Jeremiah, Jeremiah 29 Verse 10, for thus says the Lord, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. So, you know, Daniel was very much focused on that 70 years because he had counted up and knew that his 70 years was just about up. So he knew that God was getting ready to bring the remnant back out of captivity And back into Jerusalem. 
But read the rest of what Jeremiah says. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from where I sent you into exile. See, the problem that Daniel, what Daniel didn't realize was this prophecy has one of those classic time skips in it that we've studied about. He thought the Israelites were going to be gathered from all of the nations. They were going to come back to God. Everything, they were going to be blessed at the end of the 70 years. But that's not what happened. Gabriel came to help Daniel understand the timing of that restoration and the fact that that restoration is related in timing to the advent of the Antichrist. That's why it has to do with that vision. Just a small aside, when we studied last week, we saw, we looked in Ezra and Nehemiah, and we saw two times after the exiles had been allowed to return to Jerusalem that they humbled themselves before God, they repented, they pledged to follow his commandments, they did everything that you would think was necessary. And that's true if they had really done it. What I didn't tell you last week was after the second time um, when they had pledged to follow all the commandments and keep the Sabbath with Nehemiah, Nehemiah went back to his job in Babylon. You see, he, he was cupbearer to the king. He was like the wine taster guy to make sure the king didn't get poisoned. So he went back to work. He was only on temporary furlough to help out in Jerusalem. Well, some years passed and he came back to Jerusalem. And when he came back, they were conducting trade on the Sabbath. They had intermarried with idolaters. And they had even rented rooms in the temple to an unbeliever. So they had fallen away virtually immediately. And to this day, they have never come back. N- never again was there a period in their history where as a nation... They kept the Sabbath. They kept the year of Jubilee. They followed all the commandments. They had a heart for God collectively. And their fortunes have never been restored. That prophecy in Jeremiah that we just read has never been fulfilled yet. They still are scattered. You know that. (laughs) They're scattered all over the world. They're still persecuted. They still don't own Jerusalem even. You know, the temple that we studied in, that they rebuilt um, in part under Ezra and Nehemiah, that was called the Temple of Zerubbabel because Zerubbabel was one of the like overseers who was sent to oversee the work. There's only ever been three temples. They started out with a tabernacle in the wilderness that was a movable tent temple. Okay? Then finally, King Solomon uh, built Solomon's temple. That was the first temple. It was very large, very grand. It was destroyed when Jerusalem was sacked in 586 B.C., right? You know, when the Babylonians came and destroyed everything. They took all the stuff from the temple, destroyed it, destroyed Solomon's temple. Then, after the 70 years captivity, Zerubbabel's temple was built. And that's the one that was smaller and not as, you know, fancy as the first one. 
Well, that temple remained until the time of Christ, when Herod tore it down and rebuilt a bigger, grander, greater temple called Herod's Temple. Herod's Temple remained until 70 AD, which was, Herod's Temple was built in 20 BC, so some some years before Christ. It lasted through the time of Christ and was the temple Jesus was in when he did his teaching. And in 70 AD, Jerusalem was completely destroyed again. And there has never been a temple since. The temple site is now where a mosque sits called the Dome of the Rock. We know there is yet one more temple to come because Ezekiel saw it. Ezekiel prophesied, and we read when we were studying the Ancient of Days and his throne, we read some bits about the temple and about how Ezekiel saw the glory of the Lord come and again to rest on the temple. The temple that he saw the glory of the Lord came to was one that the Lord had showed him in great detail in previous visions. He, he, he laid out the, bound, the measurements of it, what it's supposed to look like. I mean, you can draw a picture of this temple. That temple with those dimensions has never existed. It is still to come. And that the glory of the Lord coming back to his people of Israel has not ever happened. It's still to come. They are in the process of doing all that. The Jews are very big into replacing all. In fact, I have a minister who's been out there and seen all this stuff. And they have the, the, the pieces that they use for the ceremonies and the, and the temple and stuff have been made. They have, they're in the process of breeding animals that meet the requirements for the, wow. the sacrifice and all that. So there are, is a, a knit group of people in the Jewish body that are trying to reestablish everything and they are in the process of all that. They just don't have a temple built. Do they, are they planning on putting, they can't plan on putting it on the normal temple site on Zion? I mean, there's no place to put it. I don't know what their heart is yeah. and we don't know whether it is the ultimate temple will be replaced on that particular site, but that's, that's, that's there is a heart for that in the Jewish yeah. Ezekiel is a contemporary of Daniel's. Okay, so he he doesn't necessarily know about the prophecies related to this new temple. All right, so Gabriel has come to explain to Daniel. You know, I know your heart is right, Daniel, but the heart of the people is not right, and there is a time gap between the seventy years and the restoration of Israel. So then, this is what Gabriel says to him in Daniel chapter 9, verse 24. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So we're going to kind of dissect that a little bit, try to understand those pieces. For one thing, where it says 70 weeks, the word weeks is not weeks. They translated it weeks, it's not weeks. The word is actually sevens. It's 70 sevens. And it's a word in Hebrew that is like the word dozen to us. It means, where dozen means 12 of something. It could be 12 cookies, it could be 12 eggs, it could be 12 of anything, right? Sevens could be seven of anything. And there are... 
you know, some scholars on the fringe that say it should be seven literal weeks, but it doesn't make any sense in the context. Virtually unanimously, I mean, the overwhelming portion of scholars agree that this should be interpreted as years. Okay, so sets of seven years. So 70 sets of seven years. This says 490. Yours says 490 years. Yeah. Okay. Um, Which is what it would what it would work out to be. The other thing to notice is that it relates to specifically your people and your holy city. So it's real important not to get confused here. This whole prophecy, the things that are listed here are things that will happen to the Jews, to the Jewish nation, and to Jerusalem. They're not talking about the Gentiles. Okay, now, that doesn't necessarily exclude us. There are things that will happen here that will include us. But this is specifically focused on what will happen to the Jews. So here's the six things. Let's start with the first one. To finish transgression. The Hebrew, some of your Bibles will say finish transgression. Other Bibles will say finish the transgression. The Hebrew actually does have the word the or the article the in it. Okay. Finish the transgression. It's not just any old transgression. <laughs> All right. So um, I've given you a handout called the purpose of the 77s um, so that we could just look at the Hebrew words and make sure that we get the full sense of what's being said here. So the first one, the word finish. The word finish means to restrict by act or by word, as in to hold back or hold in or prohibit. It means to forbid, to keep back, refrain, restrain, retain, shut up, be stayed, withhold. You get the idea? That's not what I get from the word finish, <laughs> you know. So, so that's why it's good to look at the Hebrew. What's going to happen is transgression is going to be held back, contained. Okay. It's going, not going to be allowed to operate, presumably for some period of time. It doesn't tell us whether it's for a period of time or for forever. But there will come a time where during this 490 years where transgression is going to be basically locked up. All right. Now, transgression is the transgression. And the word means revolt, either national, moral or religious. It's a rebellion. Okay. And we know from our previous studies of the word transgressor and transgression that it has to do with the corporate national rebellion against God. Okay. Another word that's often used is apostasy, right? We, if we looked back in chapter 8 in verse 23, the Antichrist arises when transgressors have run their course. We know from the vision that Gabriel's talking about that that timing of the completion of the transgression is when the Antichrist comes. Okay, his, his rise will re- mark the beginning of the end. Another thing to remember is 2 Thessalonians 2, um, basically 1 through 8, where Paul is talking to the Thessalonians. And remember, they thought the day of the Lord had already come and they missed it. We've read this one a couple of times. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. But it says, don't worry, because it will not come unless the apostasy comes first. 
Okay. So it, it's not going to come until this great rebellion and falling away happens. Number two, make an end of sin. Now, sin is just what you think of. You know, if you look up the word sin, it's sin. <laughs> no, no big surprises there. But to make an end of it, that word means to close up, to seal, to mark, seal up, stop. It's the same feeling you're getting from the transgression. Okay? It's, it's as if sin is going to get locked up as in a tomb. Okay? That hasn't happened yet. That, yeah. <laughs> I think Daniel's getting the picture here. You know? <laughs> it hasn't happened yet. And, and we know that that, has, that that sealing up of sin, the taking away of sin from the nation of Israel is prophesied over and over and over in the Old Testament. We have read several of them. One of them is in Ezekiel 36, verse 23. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when I prove myself holy among you in their sight. For I will take you. And notice, it's, he's starting out saying, Israel, you're going to be so bad that nobody will respect me. Nobody will respect God because they look at the Israelites and say, yeah, right. Uh-huh. You know, they worship a powerful God. Uh huh. He says, I am going to show those nations be how powerful and how holy I am because I am going to pluck you up. I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. That does not imply that Israel did a lot. It implies that God takes them and does this for them. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to observe my ordinances. There's a really interesting doublet of passages that there is a quote of an Old Testament scripture related to the cleansing of sin for Israel in Romans. Paul talks about it in Romans. But I want to read you the original before we read the Romans, okay, so that you can see the difference because he quotes it differently, okay? What he's quoting is Isaiah 59, 15 through 20. Now the Lord saw... And it was displeasing in his sight that there was no justice. And when he saw that there was no man and was astonished there was no one to intercede, then his own arm brought salvation to him. And the next several verses talk about the raising up of the Messiah. And his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness like a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself with zeal as a mantle. According to their deeds, so he will repay. Wrath to his adversaries, recompense to his enemies. To the coastlines he will make recompense. So they will fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream which the wind of the Lord drives. Now that, does that sound like the first coming of Christ? Not a lot. First coming was very humble, wasn't it? Very quiet. 
his second coming is going to be like this one. Okay? This is the Messiah that the Jews were looking for. Okay? And the last verse of that passage, a redeemer will come to Zion and to those who turn from transgression in Jacob, declares the Lord. Notice the, the use of the word transgression there. Now, clearly a reference to the Messiah. It is, has always been recognized as such by the Jews. Now, let's look at how Paul quotes that in Romans chapter 11, verse 25. For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved, just as it is written. So he's saying that I don't want you to be, you know, full of yourselves. He said, you missed the boat the first time. You, you had hard hearts. And that was in part so the Gentiles could be brought in. But the day will come when the Messiah will be recognized by Israel. And here's what he says. He quotes Isaiah. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. See, if you just read the Isaiah passage, it says the Redeemer Redeemer will come to Zion and to those who turn from transgression in, in the nation of Israel. But the way the Jews understood it, which was in the context of all the rest of the Old Testament prophecy about God taking away their sin. It's not that he misquoted. He just kind of like mushed in a bunch of other prophecy there. He said, this is my covenant with them when I, when I take away their sins. To make a long story short. Exactly. So the first coming of Christ, they definitely had the opportunity to recognize the Messiah. Okay. Jesus said, told them they had no excuse for not recognizing him. If they knew God, they would know him. But scripture is full of the fact that they get a second chance. You know, and that they will be saved. So the third thing that's going to happen in the 490 years is make atonement for iniquity. Atonement is a word that means to cover, specifically with bitumen, which I had to look that up. I didn't even know what that was. That's like tar or pitch. It's as in paving a road. Covering as in paving over is what that word can sometimes be used for. Figuratively, which is how it's being used here, it means to expiate. That means that word means to pay the penalty for, condone, placate, or cancel, to appease, to cleanse, to forgive, to pacify, to purge away, put off, reconcile. So, you know, the word I pick out of all of that to make atonement for iniquity, and iniquity is simply evil or sin. You know, there was no big surprise there. It's to cancel. That word popped out at me. It, evil will be canceled out, cleansed away, forgiven. Now that we know did happen. That happened with the first coming. So we know for a fact the first coming will be part of this 490 year period. Okay. The next thing, number four, bring in everlasting righteousness. This may be... This may be the, one of the most important takeaways from this lesson, if, if you don't already know this. Because there's two things you need to know. One thing is what is meant by the word righteousness. The Jewish concept of righteousness is very different from what we 
in our English and in our Christian heritage understand the word righteousness to be. If we took a poll around the table and asked, what is righteousness? What does that word bring up in your mind? What would you say? Pardon? Holiness. Perfection. Honest. Right livingness. Okay, exactly. That's not what righteousness means. Isn't that amazing? We've gone through our whole Christian lives, had no clue. What righteousness means to a Jew and in the Old Testament context is the fulfillment of the obligations of a relationship. The fulfillment of the obligations of a relationship. It is always to be taken in context of a relationship of some sort. Like a covenant. I think of it as a legal term. That helps me, I think, contract almost. Okay, But it's really not a contract. It's really the terms of a relationship. Often the terms of the relationship are written in a covenant. You see the See how they go together? And yes, covenant is a good word. For example, in Jewish law, when a man died childless and left a widow, his brother was obligated to marry the widow and have children to continue his brother's line. In, in marrying his brother's widow, that man was by definition righteous because he fulfilled the obligation of his brotherhood. And his obligation to that widow. Nowadays, if somebody married his brother's widow, he'd be considered a moral degenerate. Okay? It's, righteousness is to be taken in context of the relationship. That's so how does righteousness relate to us now then? Well. We're not quite getting this concept. Getting this. Okay. Well, let's look at, at one of the most famous and I think the most telling for a Christian Examples of righteousness. That is in Genesis 15, verse 5 and 6. This is back at the beginning. when Before Abraham's name was changed to Abraham, it was still Abram. What it says is, this is, this is when Abram was, had already followed God from, from the land of Babylon where he lived. Okay, Followed him all the way around to the promised land and... And God said, took him outside and said, Abram, look up, look up in the sky. See all those stars? I'm going to make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. Now, Abram is too old to have kids. He's got no kids. His wife is barren. He knows that. They've been trying to have kids for years. No way, Jose, you know. God says, look in the sky. That's how many descendants you're going to have. You're going to be the father of a great nation. And look what it says about righteousness. And he took him outside and said, Now look to the heavens and count the stars if you are able to count them. And God said to Abram, So shall your descendants be. Then Abram believed in the Lord, and the Lord reckoned it to Abram as righteousness. The only requirement on Abram for for that blessing was to believe. He didn't have to be good. He didn't have to go travel again he didn't have to do marry somebody he didn't have to do anything he just had to believe and God reckoned it to him as fulfillment of his obligation that's 
the kind of relationship God offers us as Christians. Through Christ. All we have to do is believe. Christ came and said, just believe. It was the exact same requirement as under the Abrahamic covenant. To be, yes, to be righteous. To be, to fulfill our obligation to God because Jesus did it for us. That's right. That's right. That's right. You're looking very confused. This is the kind of thing to um, well, ponder, you know? Yeah. Um, well, I know I, I've heard the statement, faith is the only thing necessary for salvation, but you, and I, I didn't necessarily agree with that statement. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think there's a whole lot more to it than just having faith, because it has to start with believing first. I, well, I even Satan believes. Mm-hmm. It takes a commitment to him. Mm-hmm. Now, Satan acknowledges who Jesus Christ is. So he believes who Jesus Christ is, but he's never taken him as a, into his heart to be a follower. As a savior. Yeah. So, you know, acknowledging it is not going to hack it. You have to accept to follow him, to, to believe in what he, he wants you to do and look to him for guidance. That's that's very good. And, and, you know, once you've taken the first step of I think when when Jesus talks about believing, he's talking about believing that he can do for us what he says he can do. It's really being willing to let him do it and not you do it on your own strength. It's the, the Bible says your righteousness, the kind of. Righteousness you come up with when you try to do good is as filthy rags before God. <laughs> there is no way to do it other than Christ. And the, and the Israelite nation, the Jewish nation, is, is living proof of that. They were given the law as the pattern for how to be righteous in a human sense, how to fulfill the obligations before God. If they would do these things, that there was this whole covenant with God, they would do these things and God would bless them hugely. They couldn't do it. They could not do it in their own strength. Because, and what ended up happening, as we find out in the New Testament, Paul talks about, and also the, the writer of Hebrews talked at great length about the fact that because they had that law of things to follow, there was sin because they couldn't do it. They didn't do it. It, it de- basically defined what sin was. Whereas before, that, def- that definition didn't exist. So it's very interesting that God tried so many different ways to help us fulfill these obligations. And one of the reasons we started our study the way we did the very first lesson, where we went through God's plan for man, and saw its consistency was so that you would know that God wasn't changing it every two seconds. That always from the beginning, all he wanted us to do was walk with him and be blessed. That, was, that is our righteousness. That is, that is the definition of righteousness for us. To walk with God and be blessed. 
And to look at the Jewish nation and how God dealt with them is to look at yourself and see how God deals with you. It's really mm-hmm. a picture mm-hmm. of both. Mm-hmm. Of our own lives and our relationship with him as well as... I mean, I think that's what he intended for us to understand. Mm-hmm. 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 So, with that knowledge, go back this week and kind of flip through your New Testament, especially some of the writings of Paul. Romans is a great one to take a look at, that he talks about righteousness in, a, in great detail. And as you read, substitute having fulfilled his obligations, or some phrase like that, mm-hmm. for the word righteousness, and see if that whole book doesn't start to make more sense. <laughs> All right. The other thing to know is that, that this 490 years says it's going to usher in everlasting righteousness. That phrase, everlasting righteousness, is only used one other time in Scripture. It's in um, Psalm 119, verse 142, where it says, Your righteousness is an everlasting righteousness, and your law is truth. It refers to God's righteousness. Okay, Man's righteousness is not everlasting. God's righteousness is everlasting. So this 490 years is going to usher in everlasting righteousness. That was Psalm 119, 142. The fifth thing that will happen during the 490 years is seal up vision and prophecy. Well, that one's really strange. That was unexpected. I was, you know, kind of rocking along just fine till I got to that one. I was expecting all the other ones. <laughs> you know? What does that mean? Is there something strange to that word? So I looked up the word seal, seal up, and it means exactly that, seal up in the in the Hebrew. No, nothing hidden there. It's kind of plain Hebrew as you would say. So to seal up vision and prophecy. Well, why would that happen? Well, one reason would be because we don't need it anymore. Okay? Because, number one, all the prophecies have been fulfilled or spoken in our, you know, all the ones that are necessary have been spoken and we don't need it anymore. And that, in fact, is what Jeremiah prophesied would happen. If we look at Jeremiah 31, 34... They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. Part of what will happen in this 490 years, sin is taken away, transgression is locked up, withheld, restrained, everlasting righteousness is ushered in, and every man knows the Lord. Personally, at least every Israelite does, every Jew does, since this is related to them. Okay, there's no need for vision and prophecy. It's each person has the relationship directly with God. And we'll know in the end times when the Antichrist comes and starts making prophecy that it's not real, because then he'll start doing that. I think the timing will be interesting because I think that the timing will happen, I think what will happen is this transgression, and it, and it does talk about the fact that trans, the transgression and the apostasy will run its course, and at the end of that period of time, the Antichrist will arise. And then there's a period of time where he operates, 
And at the end of that time, Jesus comes. And I believe a lot of this happens when Jesus comes. And I think when Jesus comes, he gathers the Israelites back to himself. They see him. They recognize him. It's like, oh, we get it now, you know. And, and so it may be that the Antichrist operates while we are in, still in a period of vision and prophecy. And, and that, that, does not, that that doesn't get sealed up until the end of his time. So very interesting um, that, that that will happen in these 490 years. And the last thing that will happen is anoint the most holy place. The Hebrew, if you read the Hebrew, the Hebrew actually says to anoint the holy holy. It uses the same word twice. Exactly the same word. To anoint the holy holy. That phrase is translated elsewhere in the Bible as the holy of holies. Okay, that is the way they referred to the inner sanctum. You know, when they had the tabernacle out in the wilderness, when the Israelites were wandering around in the wilderness and God very first set this whole system of worship up for them, the tabernacle had three areas. There was an outside area, okay, where they did the sacrifices and there was some washing going on and um, ritual out there, cleansing and atonement kind of rituals would happen kind of out in the yard, in the courtyard. And then there was an inner part of the tabernacle where they would come in the tent, doors of the tent and there, that's where essentially the forerunner of communion was. They had the bread and the candles and, and so there were certain rituals that should happen in there. Now the priests operated in that part of the tabernacle and in the outdoors part of the, of the courtyard every single day. And there was a ton of priests. There wasn't just one priest. There was lots of priests. Okay, The whole family of Levites that, and everybody had their own job. Only once a year did the high priest, was he allowed to go into the very innermost holy of holies, the holiest place in the tabernacle. And it was in that part that the books of Moses, the tablets, the actual tablets that God gave Moses were stored. The rod of Aaron that budded miraculously was stored. Okay, It was in there that um, the Ark of, they were stored in the Ark of the Covenant, which was a, a gold, a, a wooden box overlaid with gold that had, you know, the poles when this, the, that you see people carrying around. It had cherubim over it. We read about what cherubim looked like when we read about the Ancient of Days with the four wings and the wheels. And the, it had, had some representation of cherubim over it because that was where, the glory of the Lord, the Shekinah glory, actually sat. And the priest, nobody could even just walk in there. Um, if, in fact, when they had to move that, that particular piece of the, the, the Ark of the Covenant, only particular people can move it in a particular way. And one time when David was actually moving it up to move it up into, the, into Jerusalem, he was trying to get it into his holy city, the guys who were carrying it, the ark started to tip. They stumbled and the ark started to tip. And one guy reached down and, and kept it from falling over. God struck him dead for touching it. Okay. This is, we're talking holy with a capital H. Okay. The holy of holies. And once a year, the high priest would go through a big long series of, of ritual sacrifices 
And then he would go into the Holy of Holies, basically as to atone for the sins of, of the people. Well, when he went in, they would tie a rope around his ankle so they could haul him back out again if he was struck dead while he was in there. <laughs> okay? So when it says that, that to, the last thing that will happen is to anoint the Holy of Holies, that's, that's a specific phrase for a specific thing. That prophecy has been fulfilled already. That happened in the first coming. And the way it happened was when Jesus was crucified and he was on the cross and he said, Father, forgive them. And he said, into your hands I commend my spirit. And he breathed his last. The, the covering entering into the Holy of Holies in the temple of Herod ripped from top to bottom at that moment. It was no longer valid because Jesus entered there once and for all, for all of us. There was no more need for a door between us and him. And so through Jesus, we are allowed to live in the Holy of Holies. In his presence is a huge gift. And we could not do that without his covering of righteousness without him making us right with God. We don't have to go through all those rituals and somebody has to tie a rope around our leg, make sure we can make it out safe and sound. And there, I, you know, that just confirms there's so much more that we just do not even touch on. We just don't go there. I think there's so much more available to us that we, we just have not been taught that it's there and available. The altars in church used to be holy. Mm-hmm. But are they now? Right. Used to be oh, a sacred, like, sacred place. We, we tend to turn God into a teddy bear, Santa Claus figure, where we go to get all our things we want. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's what it was supposed to be. How are you supposed to be treated? Right. We've, we've really lost the fear of the Lord. The, the real fear of the Lord, as well as the respect, awesome, the recognition of his power, power and holiness. We lose that. And scripture says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You have to get there before you really begin to understand. You have to live an unbelief with the power that's available to you. Yeah, I don't think the fear of the Lord means shaking in our shoes. Sometimes. Well, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> but I think through Christ we're not accustomed to the fact that it should mean that. Yeah, right. You know, it's I think we've that. trivialized to some extent. As a Grace. non-believer, you better shake yes. in your shoes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yes. if you are a believer yes. and you rebel and do things right. that he says don't do, right. shake in your shoes. And I see it more <laughs> as like, as a believer, being uh-huh. obedient mm-hmm. and knowing, I mean, we take understanding the ten, that. We take the Ten Commandments so trivially. Right. Mm-hmm. Really. Mm-hmm. I mean, do we, mm-hmm. you know, think, mm-hmm. you know, if I break this commandment, 
I'm going to pay a consequence? That's what they said. You surely won't die. That's right. I lie still every day, you know, and Satan's. See, you didn't die. You're okay. You're still here. It's better. Everything's okay. It's mine. You've taken your relationship with God away and the power of your life to live a victorious right. life. That's so right. you do pay the You do. And you sometimes don't even, or too stupid to know what you've done to yourself. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm guilty. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Just foolishly mm-hmm. ignore, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, why don't we... Why don't we end with a prayer?